This is Gesher, the podcast that's bridging the gap between the Jewish and evangelical Christian communities with conversations that matter. Here's your host, Ty Perry, with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Gesher, and I want to thank you for joining me. As you may know, we at the Friends of Israel are committed to combating anti-Semitism and to educating audiences, especially evangelical Christians, about its dangers and its rise. This summer, Mosaic Magazine published an essay entitled, From Koi to Goy, How America's Far Right Found Its Anti-Semitic Voice and Figured Out Its True Identity. Here to talk with me about that essay is its author, Tamara Behrens. Behrens is Director of Young Professionals Programs at the Tikva Fund, an ideas institution committed to supporting the intellectual, religious, and political leaders of the Jewish people. Behrens is also co-director of Tikva's Krauthammer Fellowship and is a contributor to Mosaic Magazine. She graduated from King's College London with a Bachelor of Arts in War Studies, and her writing has appeared in publications in the U.S., U.K., and Israel, such as National Review and The Weekly Standard. At Mosaic, she writes about anti-Semitism and Jewish life in America, and I'm honored to have her on the program today. Tamara, welcome to Gesher. Thank you so much for having me, Ty. Well, Tamara, uh, when I first read your essay, it struck me because it so clearly articulated what I, uh, as as an evangelical and as a political conservative myself, have uh, anecdotally deduced. Uh, which is the mainstreaming in the West of what was once fringe, far-right anti-Semitism or anti-Semitic ideology. But for you, this phenomenon is more than secondhand, and you write about this in your essay uh, by discussing your own encounters with anti-Semitism, encounters that ultimately led you to flee the UK and to come to the United States. So would you tell us a little bit about those encounters? Uh, What did you witness? What did you experience? Absolutely. So... When I was growing up in in London in the United Kingdom, we were experiencing kind of the height of the um, effects of the the war on terror, the Iraq war. And really during this time, I think the crystallization of an association of the state of Israel with really um, the specter of evil of kind Mm. of um, American foreign policy, um, which was, you know, in my view, a very unfair association. And I wouldn't uh, make that judgment of the war on terror or uh, the Iraq war. Um, but I think that it became more and more acceptable to essentially call Israel out, um, you know, as, as the source uh, of this evil. And in, in some cases, really, as the instigator, people felt of this kind of unjust um, war. And obviously, living in, in the United Kingdom, um, in close proximity to the Middle East and with large immigrant populations, a lot of these uh, of this hatred really took hold um, on the ground. And so um, the way this manifested for me was um, both, you know, as a child sort of hearing things in the playground, um, things that parents had uh, passed on to their children, um, you know, these sort of stereotypes about Jews that, that really took hold and I think led uh, people to treat me differently as, as someone who was Jewish. And then as I grew up um, going into uh, university on a college campus, um, I attended King's College London, which is um, a very large university in the center of London. There was a convergence of uh, pro-Palestinian activism, both in the university space, but also just in London as a city in general. Um, And so on my end, what I wanted to do as someone who was Jewish and who believed strongly in the state of Israel and its flourishing, 
and wants to celebrate it and promote engagement with it. My, my goal was really to um, uh, bring speakers to, to campus um, to educate both students and also you know people in the sort of broader public living in London that wanted to attend. Um, and what I witnessed there were just um, huge uh, organized protests uh, against really any action that myself and my peers on campus uh, tried to take to um, deepen engagement with Israel. And this often led into violence. Um, so you had uh, people throwing chairs at windows mm, uh, when speakers were trying to give their points of view. Um, and then this converged with a political reality in the United Kingdom um, where, you know, leftism was on the rise and it was manifested in a very, uh, really a far left leader of what was once a mainstream political party, the Labour Party. Um, and so, you know, the pro-Palestinian activists, the sort of anti-war activists of which Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, was very much uh, representative. Um, these people actually had political power in in Britain in terms of dominating really the institution of this of this party. And so um, I think for me personally, uh, it just sort of got to the point where I didn't see a future for myself in a country in which, you know, public perceptions were so aligned against my beliefs. Um, and so coming to the United States was really a dream, a dream come true for me. And I'd always believe strongly in um, the conservative movement in the United States and its power to not only to keep out anti-Semites, but to be, you know, a vehicle for a strong, uh, strong support of the state of Israel, of the relationship between the U.S. and, and Israel. Um, and so that's what's been somewhat worrisome in terms of the time frame of me, you know, moving here, embarking on my professional career here, and then actually encountering anti-Semitism of different strains, uh, more so on the right of the political spectrum um, being here. So I'm happy to talk more about what that looks like. Yes, well, in, I want to talk about that because in your essay, um, you write about the change that you witnessed in our nation's capital in Washington among conservatives um, over the course of a five or six year period, particularly in regards to the kinds of conversations you would have with fellow conservatives um, as it pertain to Israel and, and other um, issues. Uh, as a conservative myself, and, and most evangelicals are conservative, we like to think uh, in our dream world that anti-Semitism is, is held captive by the left, that it doesn't, it's, we would never see manifestations of that on the right. Um, obviously, that's untrue. Um, so talk a little bit about those conversations that you're having among fellow conservatives um, how did those conversations change during those years for you? So one of the things that was so attractive to me um, about the United States was really being able to engage with Christians um, in the conservative movement in ways that I wasn't able to in the United Kingdom, which is a very secular country. Um, uh, and, you know, religion, religion isn't really... Um, incorporated into into politics in any way, even mm -hmm. though that, you know, that there, there isn't separation of church and state, church and state. Um, and so I was very excited to encounter when I first spent time in Washington, DC, you know, evangelicals and Christians of other denominations who were um, very keen to talk to me about either their experiences already having visited the state of Israel, um, or their future desire to visit the state of Israel and talking to me about the political realities of the relationship between the US and Israel. 
Um, and this was just something that kind of dominated a lot of the conversations that I had with people that I interacted with um, in, you know, young professional circles in, in Washington. And then I spent a little bit of time away from Washington during the, the pandemic and, and coming back um, a few years ago, it seemed as though the landscape had suddenly just dramatically changed um, to really worrisome ends. Um, and I think really in that period, um, sort of, you know, uh, the end of 2018 through the pandemic, uh, um, obviously January 6th, um, I think, unfortunately, we saw a growth um, of really a hostility, not only to the state of Israel, but I think to a lot of, um, you know, America's allies abroad, um, and really also the growth of conspiracism um, that I think just you know, grew exponentially during during the pandemic. Obviously, there are a lot of unfortunate associations between um, a COVID nineteen and the Jews, but also measures to um, to counteract the spread of the pandemic and the Jews. The Jews were kind of scapegoated in in, in many ways. Um, but at this time, also there was this fringe group on the right that started moving further and further to the center. I think really taking advantage of this sort of uh, shift to conspiracism that might have uh, grown among the American population as a whole. You had things like uh, QAnon, um, which was, you know, which is a, a set of conspiracy theories that has waned now, but um, during the, the pandemic held, um, I think, really uh, worrisome degrees of um, of interest um, among the, the public, which, which I didn't expect. And so what happened was, you know, coming back to Washington DC um, from then and, and through to the present, a lot of my conversations with, um, with conservatives, really of, of all stripes, um, uh, are more geared towards worrying about the US-Israel relationship, being worried about the state of Israel, mm. rather than celebrating that relationship. Um, and it's, it's been something that has uh, been quite you know, sad to see at the level that I operate in. But it's also maybe concerned about um, it may be concerned about everything that I wasn't seeing. You know, obviously, I'm surrounded by people who are um, fairly, you know, comport themselves in professional ways. Mm -hmm. um, they are kind of, you know, genteel in the way that they interact with with people. And then there's this underbelly online um, that I wasn't initially so familiar in before embarking on this journey of writing this piece. Um, but as soon as I started, you know, digging my uh, Digging into that and seeing the extent of the rhetoric um, against the Jewish people online, against the state of Israel online, in spaces that people on the right of the political spectrum tend to occupy, um, that's when I really got concerned. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm worried, frankly, that things will only continue to, to get worse um, if, if something isn't done. You write, and I quote, for a while, I assumed that my conversation partners were members of or sympathetic to the alt-right, the internet-based movement of discontents, meme creators, and neo-Nazis that reached the height of its influence and infamy in the early years of the Trump administration before the response to their 2017 march in Charlottesville drove its members back into their online underground and deeper into their own monoculture. But it is now 2023. Um, you go on to point out that alt-right is something of a a defunct term now. So let's just, let's step back in time just briefly and define that term. What was meant at least at that point by alt-right um, and uh, 
Yeah. What, what was meant by that? Yeah. So the alt-right was um, stood for people who rejected kind of the conservative and Republican establishment leading up to the 2016 presidential election. Mm -hmm. um, so these were people who felt that the Republican Party um, had failed um, in sort of not going far enough on a whole host of, of different issues that were important. Um, and their sense was that, you know, culturally um, and politically, um, America was kind of on, on the brink and that there really needed to be this sort of radical um, shift in order for um, various aspects of American society and culture to, to be saved. Um, and so for them, you know, they were extremely anti-immigration, often anti-Semitic, um, but not, not, always, uh, not always so evidently so. Um, and, they, and they associated themselves with, to a degree, with white nationalism, a lot of the figures that were sort of around the, the alt-right, meaning that they felt that, you know, America ought to be um, organized as a country for whites, um, excluding to a degree non-whites and um, uh, politically, you know, emphasizing that fact as kind of the key unifier um of of the country which obviously you know goes against uh my beliefs but also that was something that was uh very much not uh not just not tolerated it just wasn't you know relevant to the republican party at right. the time however the alt-right began to sort of you know converge with with donald trump they really seized on donald trump as a candidate that they felt like could be a popular vessel um for what they believed in um and of course he never, you know, directly identified as being of the alt-right. Donald Trump never said, this is, you know, the group that I am a part of. He sure. was able to kind of shapeshift and be everything to everyone. Um, but but that's that's who the alt-right was uh, in, in 2016. And they targeted people like Ben Shapiro, who's, you know, very prominent um, conservative writer and speaker with um, anti-Semitism on, on Twitter. This was also the rise, obviously, of social media, the rise of a platform like Twitter. And he, um, Ben Shapiro, was, um, I think, shocked to see kind of the, the prevalence, um, the prevalence of, uh, of really the tweets targeted against him. There were just tens of thousands of them. And it seemed like there was sort of a network of, you know, bots or really an organized coalition of people that were engaged in trying to kind of expunge um, some prominent Jews from the right at the time. But the key thing is, I think, in, in 2016, is that there, there really were a lot of prominent conservatives, uh, Republican figures also speaking out against the alt-right. Um, and it was something that, you know, there was a really strong understanding across the political spectrum that this was something that we shouldn't be in favor of. And it was kind of relegated to sort of a fringe, a fairly fringe community um, at that time. Now you mentioned uh, the the kind of a white supremacy that was inherent in the alt right, and also in your um, essay, you mentioned there are anti-immigration, not only illegal immigration, but immigration. They associated that with the Jewish people. But you bring out something that was surprising to me. Uh, I guess I'm I'm naive, but uh, as an evangelical, my conservatism is largely rooted in a biblical Judeo-Christian worldview. But you write that for the alt-right, one of their core uh, stances, and I'm going to quote you here, was a belief in paganism, both in itself and as a tool for uniting an irreligious white far-right base. So in your view, where does that paganism come from? And how did that paganism on the alt-right affect uh, their view of the Jewish people? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for bringing that out. Um, it's something that was very surprising to me. I think that paganism on the alt-right um, really comes from the decline of uh, religion in America, religious affiliation, belief in God, you know, membership in religious communities, um, which is, you know, unfortunately waning, as we know. Um, and paganism is essentially a clever organizing tool to kind of try and replace the role of religion. You have some people on the alt-right, though, like Richard Spencer, who's um, kind of stuck around, actually, perhaps as a member now of just the far right in, in general, since the alt-right itself has, uh, has dissipated a bit. Mm -hmm. And someone like Richard Spencer, who's very smart, is really trying to use paganism as a tool to his advantage um, on an intellectual level um, and build an alternative framework for you know, what it means to uh, be a member of a community in the United States. And so to someone like him, it's really emphasizing um, uh, the role of, of men in, in society. Um, so, you know, from a biblical framework, for example, encouraging people to have children is done so in a way that I think really elevates the entire family unit. Yes. Both mother and father having children in a traditional sense, you know, ideally with the support of extended family and community. But what we're seeing on, you know, the, the alt-right and then the far-right today as it grows is really this emphasis on just the male role and sort of men needing to kind of take back their own sense of manliness um, in society and basically, you know, having children with multiple wives, for example, that's something that a lot of people in this kind of pagan circle have, um, have espoused. Um, and the reason for this is they see this sort of urgency in, in populating, um, you know, uh, America with, with more uh, people who are white. Mm. And so for them as white males, um, you know, they obviously they reject the Bible, they reject religion, they can't, they reject God altogether. Um, and their argument is that they need to promote whiteness instead. And so to me, that's just, it's such an empty thing. I mean, I really don't, um, believe in in racialism of, of any sort. Right. I don't think that the white people uh, are automatically conferred with superior characteristics. It's unbiblical not to not to mention that. Yeah, absolutely. It's completely unbiblical. I mean, I just think it's wrong, and I think it's very dangerous. Obviously, because it leads to you know um, terrible conclusions about abortion um, being acceptable for other races, but not for people who are white. I mean, it's just it's very disturbing, um, and so this is something that has sort of started with Richard Spencer, but I think now has proliferated um, to, you know, different spaces and unfortunately more mainstream spaces as we move away from 2016 and going through to um, the 2020 election and now gearing up to the, the next electoral cycle and just seeing the way the right is going. Um, I think that, you know, perhaps some people on the right are quite um, cynical about the possibility of a religious revival in the United States or just of increasing um, belief and membership in uh, religious institutions and communities. And so instead they're turning to this sort of white nationalism as a replacement for that, that that's the thing that will make America distinctive mm. rather than being you know, a country um, that is in favor of religious freedom and the flourishing of uh, religious communities, which to me is a lot of what um, America is. Um, and instead they see, you know, the, the path for America, um, the path for the right as being, um, you know, really somewhere that uh, focuses on the flourishing of, of white 
people being superior to other races um, and having that be kind of what undergirds their um, their identity. So that's that's one thread of it. Um, but also, I mean, and, and we can get to this a little bit. There are some people that are rejecting that in turn and are, and are starting to sort of try and in some ways sort of marry this white nationalism with a kind of phony in my in my view christian nationalism but yes. they're sort of starting to try and use the these kind of christian terms or just pander to it by just i mean in some cases just saying the word christian there's really nothing to me that's christian about it um and when you scratch under the surface you see that it's kind of this white nationalist identity that they're sort of trying to rebrand in a way that they think will be more popular Yes. Well, I want to talk about that because in your essay, you write about um, some of these these markers of a shift from the alt-right to the far right of today. And um, as you noted, one of those is that they take already existing religious, especially Christian uh, symbols and, and terminology, and they apply it to themselves, and it's, of course, about an inch deep. There's no theological underpinnings to that, but they're getting traction by using those things. So um, I, I want to talk about that, but as, especially in the context of anti-Semitism, how, how are they channeling some of that uh, Christian imagery to bolster their anti-Semitism? Absolutely. So some of what I'm about to say will likely contradict um, a lot of what I just explained about the rise of, of white nationalism. And I think that just speaks to the extent to which um, anti-Semitism is a, a shape-shifting tool and just in general, you know, conspiracism on the right has yeah. continuously shifted to try and uh, do whatever it can to take hold among, um, you know, uh, among uh, the American people. So specifically with the adoption of white nationalist, um, excuse me, with uh, the adoption of Christian symbols, it's very concerning um, because again, it's something that they will quote, they will quote from scripture um, on occasion, um, but it's not as though they've had to do any deep, you know, searching to really find, um, find what they're looking for. I imagine that it's probably nothing more than you know, spending time on Google and finding something that confirms, um, confirms what they're trying to promote. Um, and none of these people seem to really be part of religious communities. Um, so someone like Nick Fuentes, who is in his early twenties, um, he is a live streamer who seems to kind of live really in his, in his basement, um, in his parents' basement or in, you know, some kind of property that he's managed to buy with unfortunately a large amount of funds that he's amassed from people that, um, donate to, donate to him based on, um, based on his live streaming. He is uh, someone who identifies as as Catholic, um, but you know it's it's unclear what that really means in terms of how he lives his life. And he spends his time really just spewing hatred against the Jewish people and against the state of Israel, um, and trying to promote a vision of conservatism um, that is entirely opposed to um, the uh, American support for the state of Israel and the place of the Jews within the conservative movement in America. So he focuses on taking the Judeo out of Judeo-Christian, um, which is very interesting because that's something that would be quite hard to do. Almost in, impossible. In, <laughs> in practice. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, if he was actually a member of a religious community and um, attended church, I think he would 
realize um, how wrong that is. And so I, th I think that probably speaks to the solution to a lot of these problems. Um, but uh, he essentially argues that, um, you know, uh, Judaism is the cause of transgenderism. It's the cause, obviously, of, um, you know, the birth of the state of Israel, which he says is, you know, a racist entity. It's an anti-Christian entity. He'll sort of make up anything that he can really to associate Jews and Israel with some of the worst ills that are um, plaguing American society today and just kind of point his, his finger. Um, and it's extremely concerning. You see also this reflected, I think, in politics. And that's where I really started first, actually, to take, to take notice um, that there's increasingly um, individuals that are being elected to serve um, in Congress, who, um, some of whom are you know, friendly with, with this person, Nick Fuentes, who sort of created a movement, the America First movement, as he calls it. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, Congresswoman from Georgia, spoke at Nick Fuentes' conference. Um, the America First conference a few years ago. And she really pandered to the audience, an audience which, by the way, is just full of, of men. This is a movement that is primarily geared toward men. They seem to be men who are unmarried and who are choosing not to have families and not to prioritize family life, but instead to live this sort of chosen, um, uh, or, you know, you could say forced um, uh, uh, celibacy. So mm -hmm. it, it's very concerning. And that's, that's a whole other online movement that we could get into. But I think seeing it reflected in, in Congress and seeing someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, someone like uh, um, Lauren Boebert, um, uh, again, they'll sort of quote from scripture, but they'll, they'll you know, it's incorrect. I mean, Lauren Boebert, she, um, she read um, uh, a passage about wantonness. Mm. Um, she read the word wanton as wanton, like, you know, the Chinese food, a, a wanton, <laughs> a dumpling. <laughs> Um, and she was like, hmm, was that meant to say wanton? I, I don't know what that means. And it's just, it's evident that they're sort of using and relying on these texts to really promote what's actually quite an insidious political ideology. And they don't actually have any interest in serving Christians um, and serving Christian communities. But they think that, you know, by putting the word Christian um, on their set of beliefs or by um, tapping into what they describe as a Christian nationalism, they can essentially kind of sanitize what really I think is is a form of white nationalism, mm. um, which is which has proven to be unpalatable to the American people, which I think is is obviously a good thing. But I'm concerned that if they rebrand successfully as Christian nationalists, that you know perhaps um, perhaps they might be more successful in in fooling people that are for whatever reason, naive and, and are looking for a sense of meaning. And they'll say, oh, I, I can be Christian if I if I vote a certain way. And if I, you know, take on this political point of view that the United States um, needs to uh, regain um, its identity from Jews and, and immigrants and so on and so forth. And we need to be a Christian country. But, you know, what does that really mean? It's actually very empty and it has nothing yeah. to do with really being a member of a community and, and attending church. And being someone who lives their life, um, you know, by a set of principles to be found in the Bible. So it's uh, very concerning to me. Yeah, whenever I hear about such anti-Semitism among people who uh, shrouded in, in Christian terms, I always think, uh, do you know that Jesus is Jewish? Do you, do you know, you obviously don't know the history and the, the theology there, uh, otherwise you wouldn't want to adopt that. Um, mm -hmm. In your essay, you, you term anti-Semitism quote, the uniting force of the American far right. 
Um, why do you term it so? Uh, what what do you see as um, because as you're talking about this, you have different. You have the paganists. You have uh, people who are clou- clouding their um, or cloaking their anti-Semitism and, and radical beliefs in Christian terms, and yet you're saying that anti-Semitism unites all of them. Why is that? Absolutely. So these are all very different streams, um, as you know, as we as we've really discussed. And there's very little that they actually have in common. Um, and that's partly because they have very little principles. <laughs> a lot of these people are what you might call grifters that, you know, trying to make a career for themselves. They're trying to kind of um, uh, make their fortunes and they want to, you know, they want their names out there. They want to be seen, invited to uh, meet President Trump at, at Mar-a-Lago, um, you know, like uh, Kanye West and, and Nick Fuentes, the person that I just mentioned did. Um, but they actually don't have a very strong political program. And so I think what unites people like this is really anti-Semitism as a political tool to try and gain more support. Um, You know, it's unfortunately the case that people are often taken in, um, you know, again, if they don't have uh, good sources of meaning in their lives, they're they're taken in by um, conspiratorial rhetoric like anti-Semitism. Um, it feels good to be able to blame all of your problems on um, another entity. It feels good to be able to say, if we just, you know, got the Jews out of um, the Republican Party in the United States, if we just made sure that the Jews don't have their religious freedom, if we just stopped our support for the state of Israel, well, then we could be a great country again. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the argument that um, each of these disparate groups are offering. That's really what they have in common. Um so they each have different ways that they might sort of uh, different terms that they might clout this in. Um, some of whom, you know, uh, for some of whom that's white nationalism. For others, that's uh, Christian terms. Again, you know, not not meant very sincerely. Um, but I think what unites them is this kind of conspiratorial um, set of uh, proposals, essentially, um, to just suddenly solve all of the the ills that America faces by focusing on on the Jews. Mm. Um, and it's very concerning, obviously, because, you know, as someone who's Jewish, that is a direct target um, against me, against my family, my way of life. Yes. Um, but I think it's also concerning for America as a whole, um, because when you have, you know, really so few principles and such little meaning in your life that all of your focus politically is on, um, targeting um a group of people you know the jewish people who've really been oppressed for so uh for so much of human history and who are now finally able to gain a lot of flourishing both in the state of israel but also actually in the united states as well which has offered um really blessings of of just religious freedom to the jews being the first country to do so in a significant way um to see that being challenged i think um I think it really is a direct challenge to the framework of of the United States. Um, I don't want to see a reality in which political participation means nothing more than, you know, blaming all of your problems on really an imagined group of people because the Jews that they talk about are not not real. I mean, you know, they're actively lying about what the state of Israel does in many cases, you know, pretending the state of Israel is an apartheid state, which is something that we traditionally would see from the left but that people on the far right um, are, are talking about. 
Um, and they're lying about the US-Israel relationship as being something that was supposedly set up just to serve the state of Israel, um, when actually, in fact, the United States benefits greatly from you know, um, supporting the state of Israel in the Middle East. Um, that really just only confers benefits on the US's regional interest there. So it's, um, it's something that uh, I never thought that that would be a unifier for a political movement in the United States. But I think that for the far right, that's, that's really increasingly the case. Well, let's turn to the future uh, here in our last few moments. Um, we have a presidential election coming up, which promises to be bloody, as uh, they all seem to be anymore. In your essay, you write, uh, and I quote, speculation about the future aside, the broader point here is that anti-Semitism, even as it remains both officially and pretty widely denounced, is less likely to be a point of weakness on the right in 2024 than it is a weapon. That's a that's a chilling prediction. It's one I think you're you're right about, but why did you write that? What what are you seeing that makes you say that it's more likely to be a, a weapon than a point of weakness? Yes. So I think the future of um, the rights comportment in electoral cycles um, does not does not look very good, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, I think uh, Donald Trump's candidacy and presidency has kind of led led way um, to increasing uh, infighting in the Republican Party and to the use of really dirty tactics. Um, and so, anti-Semitism um, is uh, has been used as a political weapon before. It's something that I noticed in the United Kingdom, uh, where I grew up, as we spoke about a little bit um, at the beginning, in that the Labour Party, the left-wing party in the United Kingdom, um, would actively use anti-Semitism as a recruitment tool, really, to Mm. kind of uh, get people riled up um, and to unify, again, kind of disparate groups of people that didn't really have very much in common other than the shared hatred of the Jews. And so there's two things that I'm really worried about as we head into the next um, election cycle. So the first is that um, a political candidate might seek to uh, paint their opponent as being too supportive of the Jewish people and too supportive of Israel to the detriment of the American people. Um, And so, you know, while the Republican Party has for the last few decades been very supportive, both of the state of Israel and of of the Jews, um, you know, fighting anti-Semitism on the left and um, dealing with a lot of security concerns um, uh, and terrorism concerns really against the Jewish people, um, I think there's this sentiment that's growing that, you know, we really need to roll back our commitments um, to other countries and Israel doesn't have a special place, um, you know, for the American people and we should decouple from that. And so for a candidate who's seeking to exploit a lot of that public sentiment, they might want to paint their opponent as a supporter of Israel at the expense of um, of the American people. That's the first thing that I'm worried about. Um, uh, and and you've seen it in terms of, um, there's a man by the name of George Soros, who's primarily you know, a funder of many left-wing institutions. Um, but there was some efforts actually to uh, associate um, uh, Ron DeSantis, Governor Ron DeSantis with this man, George, George Soros, mm. essentially in saying that you know, he is um, he's in bed with this person because, you know, he supports the Jews more than 
he supports Americans, which I mean, none of those things, it's not true that, you know, it, it's not true that Ron DeSantis is in bed with George, with George Soros. Right. And it's also not the case that George Soros is a supporter of Jewish or pro-Israel causes. So the whole thing is sort of fabricated. Mm. Um, that's the first thing I'm worried about. I think um, um, the second thing I'm worried about, um, which, which might seem less obvious, is just anti-Semitism being used as a political football um, uh, by people who are seeking to um, tar their opponents um, really with um, with kind of bigotry without there being much actually su of substance that's there. So um, you saw that with Breitbart writing an expose about someone by the name of, of Pedro Gonzalez, um, who is an influencer, um, again, associated with, with, with Ron DeSantis. And Pedro Gonzalez has made some really just noxious comments about the Jews um you know saying things like uh you know um it's a shame that most jews aren't you know tolerable and, and we need to kind of exonerate people who espouse anti-semitism with the movement because they have so much good to say on uh good things to say about other areas the problem with um with how this was handled was that the entire piece by breitbart was really written as an attempt to exonerate donald trump from anti-semitism so it was sort of comparing desantis and trump and saying well uh, this man, Gonzalez, who's very close to DeSantis, has done this. Uh, and Trump has actually been a champion of, of, you know, of the Jewish people and has always stood against, against anti-Semitism. And it just makes the Jewish people into really a political football. Um, uh, essentially, you know, it's evident that the expose never really cared about um, the substance of the anti-Semitic remarks, but the entire thing was an attempt to um, to tar the DeSantis campaign with, you know, uh, with a specific um, brush. So that concerns me. I think it would be preferable for anti-Semitism to, you know, to be something that doesn't have to be discussed to this extent in politics. Yeah. Again, it's something that historically has been less of a problem in the United States than in most other nations around the world. Um, and so it's always really worrisome to me when this becomes the primary mode of evaluating a specific candidate. How anti-Semitic are they? Are they close to the Jews? Are they close to the state of Israel? To me, these things should really just be a given across American society that, you know, Americans should support the state of Israel, mm -hmm. that they should have friendliness towards the Jews, and it shouldn't be something that's up for debate. So seeing that it's increasingly being debated on the right is very concerning to me. I'd like to close uh, with this. Uh, as we've noted on a, on a personal, you uh, yourself are Jewish. You fled the UK to escape in part anti-Semitism and to be part of the political world here. But in light of the changing socio-political, uh, we could even say religious to some extent climate here in the US, what kind of a future do you see here for American Jewry? And I know this goes beyond a little bit the scope of your, your essay, yeah. but as you're looking at these trends, what do you think the future is? So, the trends don't really um, impact my uh, personal sense of optimism. Mm. Um, so I say the trends are very, very negative, um, but I try and remain um, optimistic overall. And that is because I, I do think that there is this deep um, uh, relationship between the United States and the Jewish people. And it's something that's really been evident since the founding of of the US as really a haven for religious liberty um, at a time where that was by no means evident um, in other countries around the world. Um, 
And, you know, I think um, so often um, in the history of this great country, you've had, um, you know, both the founders and, and the framers um, of the American Republic really see themselves almost as, you know, the ancient Israelites. Um, you have, um, you know, Abraham Lincoln, one of the greatest statesmen, in my opinion, um, often invoking um, uh, the Jewish people and Hebraic morality. And, you know, um, I think that this will stand the test of time beyond um, the trends that we're seeing on the right. I hope so, at least. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I'm trying to be optimistic because I have such a strong love for this country. Um, at the same time, I do think that there is a lot that needs to be done in really strengthening and in some cases just building from the ground um, communities where, where that no longer exists. Because to me, really, the greatness of the United States is enabling um, people with, you know, shared values, but uh, radically sometimes different ways of enacting those values with the means to live um, a meaningful life um, and being free to do so. Um, but increasingly, we're seeing that, you know, communities really being the bedrock of this, because I don't think people can live a meaningful life alone in their basements on the internet. Um, communities are being, um, you know, decimated by various societal factors, but also just, I think, by, um, uh, you know, perhaps a lack of, in some cases, internal investment. And so for me, as someone who is Jewish, and I consider myself to be religious, I live a fairly traditional life. Um, that's something that I want to see strengthened. Um, and I think there's a role that, you know, both Jews and Christians can play in their own communities, um, strengthening internally and also reaching out to, to others who might not be attending a church or a synagogue and encouraging them to really, um, you know, see the role that, that faith and the membership in, in communities of faith can play in their lives. And that to me is the solution to a lot of this madness on the right. Tamara, I want to thank you, first of all, for your essay, uh, for so articulately expressing and exposing the mainstreaming of, of anti-Semitism on the right. Um, it should certainly be alarming and worrisome for all Americans, especially those who are truly politically conservative. But I, I want to also say um, for, for myself as a follower of Jesus, and I'm confident that I speak on behalf of many thousands of other evangelicals, that um, I'm proud to be a friend and an advocate of the Jewish people and uh, please know that we stand uh, unabashedly and, and unconditionally with your people. And so we thank you for, for your time. Thank you for all you do and, and all that the Tikva Fund does uh, for the Jewish people. Thank you. Thank you so much for your kind words. You've been listening to Gesher, a ministry outreach production of FOI Equip your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. To learn more, visit foiequip.org. And for more information about Thai, visit foi.org forward slash Perry. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.